Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We ended First Nephi with a trivia question. How do we know that Lehi's group reached the Promised Land before 589 BC? The answer to that is in 2 Nephi chapter 1 verse 4 where Lehi announces that Jerusalem has been destroyed. There's some dispute over exactly when Zedekiah began his reign in Jerusalem, but from Jeremiah 52.1 we learn that he reigned for 11 years. So. If Lehi left Jerusalem in 600 BC, then Jerusalem would have been conquered 11 years later in 589 BC. The reason I say if is because dates from that time period turn a little bit squishy. But in any case, when Lehi announced his vision of Jerusalem's destruction, they had already reached the Promised Land, which tells us that they had already reached the Promised Land by 589 BC, which is why that is what those chapters are timestamped. Today we'll be talking about 2 Nephi chapter 1. The book of 1 Nephi brought Lehi and his family to the Promised Land. The book of 2 Nephi, and for that matter the rest of the Book of Mormon, take place in the Americas or in the Promised Land. Today we'll also be talking about some of the interpersonal dynamics between Nephi and the others, and we'll discuss the promises and warnings associated with the Promised Land, and we will also discuss whether the Promised Land was occupied or unoccupied when Lehi's group arrived. In the last few chapters of 1st Nephi, Nephi taught the words of Isaiah to his brethren. In 2nd Nephi 1, after Nephi finished teaching them, Lehi also spoke to them. I had assumed that the word brethren only included Laman and Lemuel, but in 2nd Nephi 1.28 we learned that Lehi was also addressing Laman, Lemuel, Sam, and Ishmael's sons. And in verse 30, we find out that Zoram was there as well. So Lehi was addressing all of the men and perhaps some of the women and children as well. What impresses me is that after all the contention between Nephi and his brothers in the book of 1 Nephi, Lehi's family was still willing to gather and listen to, to Nephi and Lehi, and not only attend Nephi's discussion of Isaiah, but participate by asking questions. In 1 Nephi 22, for example, Nephi's brothers asked him questions about Isaiah, and Nephi explained the answers. So a quick word about what year it is. We, we don't know when Lehi died, but it was sometime between 589 BC and 570 BC. How do we know that? Well, he lived long enough to announce Jerusalem's destruction, which happened around 589 BC, like we mentioned a minute ago, but he died before the next timestamp which happens in 2 Nephi 5.28 when Nephi said that 30 years had passed since the family left Jerusalem. While Lehi was alive, it seems that all the men in the family still actively participated in gospel discussions. Lehi was getting old though and he knew that his days were numbered. So in this chapter and in the next few, he gathered his family for a final time. He told them of his dream in which he learned that Jerusalem had been destroyed. If they had stayed, they would have perished. Instead, they'd been led to the promised land for their inheritance. 
but their promised land came with some conditions attached. And Lehi felt it important to gather his family and explain what these conditions were. Starting in verse 5, But, said he, notwithstanding our afflictions, we have obtained a land of promise, a land which the Lord God hath covenanted with me should be a land for the inheritance of my seed. Yea, the Lord hath covenanted this land unto me and to my children forever, and also all those who should be led out of other countries by the hand of the Lord. Wherefore, I, Lehi, prophesy according to the workings of the Spirit which is in me, that there shall none come into this land, save they shall be brought by the hand of the Lord. That's an interesting statement, that none shall come to this land except they're brought by the hand of the Lord. I, I wonder if that aspect of the promise had an expiration date, because for most of human history, crossing the ocean was an incredible undertaking, but now you can climb on a plane and fly here in a matter of hours. It also raises the question, which land specifically do these blessings apply to? Is it everything from Alaska down through Tierra del Fuego? It's, so if we think about the old world, for thousands of years, God's chosen people hardly ever left Israel, Egypt, and a handful of neighboring countries. Almost the entire Bible, with the exception maybe of, of Paul's missionary journeys, takes place on a tiny patch of land, maybe a couple of hundred miles across. Was Lehi's promised land similar in size, or did it include the entire Western Hemisphere? Ask yourself, are there parts of the Western Hemisphere that seem more blessed or less blessed than others? Anyway, the, the blessings of the Promised Land are discussed all throughout the Book of Mormon. Prophets taught the people that they were living in a special Promised Land that would provide liberty and blessings for the righteous. But it wasn't an unconditional promise. If the day arrived when they forgot the Lord, they would be brought into captivity. Here's verse 7. Wherefore... This land is consecrated unto him whom he shall bring. And if it so be that they shall serve him according to the commandments which he hath given, it shall be a land of liberty unto them. Wherefore, they shall never be brought down into captivity. If so, it shall be because of iniquity. For if iniquity shall abound, cursed shall be the land for their sakes. But unto the righteous, it shall be blessed forever. If those living in the land of promise keep the commandments, it will be a land of liberty to them forever. A lot of times when that topic comes up in the Gospel Doctrine class, everyone wants to talk about the national government or argue about what's going on or what should be going on in Washington, D.C. So let's ask the question that Nephi's brothers like to ask. So when they heard about Lehi's dream or listened to Isaiah's teachings, they asked, are we talking about physical or are we talking about spiritual or both? So let's ask that same question about the land of promise. Is the promise referring to physical liberty and captivity or spiritual liberty and captivity? Also, does the entire country have to be righteous for the promise to apply? Or do the promises apply to us individually? What are some ways that we can personally be taken into captivity? One way is addiction. Have you seen the ads on smartphones that promise, this game is so addictive you won't be able to put it down? That's Okay, that's a bit of a silly example, but others may be more serious. For example, drug addiction, alcoholism, pornography, nicotine, and, and so on. Financial freedom and captivity is a whole other topic we could talk about. 
Did I miss any examples? Let me know in the comments. In the examples that I gave, the link between our choices and our freedom and captivity is obvious. But that type of link between choices and freedom and captivity doesn't seem like it would be limited to the promised land. It kind of applies to people everywhere. But let's keep going. Lehi continues and the next few verses actually do seem to be talking at a national level. Verse 8, And behold, it is wisdom that this land should be kept as yet from the knowledge of other nations. For behold, many nations would overrun the land that there would be no place for an inheritance. Verse 9, Wherefore I, Lehi, have obtained a promise, that inasmuch as those whom the Lord God shall bring out of the land of Jerusalem shall keep his commandments, they shall prosper upon the face of this land. Let's stop mid-verse there for a second. We'll finish the verse in a minute. What is Lehi talking about when he tells his family, those whom the Lord God shall bring out of the land of Jerusalem? Shall bring. Lehi's family was already there. So if Lehi's family had already arrived, who were the others that the Lord was planning to bring out of Jerusalem? If I were in Nephi's family, I would have asked, wait, he's bringing others? And also I would have asked, well, how is he going to bring more people out of Jerusalem? It just got destroyed a few years ago. Now, it's possible that Lehi was referring to the Mulekites. Later on, we'll learn that one of King Zedekiah's sons also left Jerusalem and came to the New World, but Lehi's family wouldn't meet them or know about them for another 400 years. So who did the people in Lehi's family think he was talking about when he said he would bring others forth out of Jerusalem? For whatever reason, Nephi never talks about meeting other groups in his records. As we've discussed previously, the, the route his family took through the Arabian Peninsula, traveling in a nearly south-southeasterly direction uh, from Jerusalem through the more fertile parts of the area, would have taken them through populated areas. It was unavoidable that they would have met other people, but there's no mention of it. However, the fact that Nephi doesn't talk about meeting with other groups doesn't mean that they didn't or that there weren't any. It makes me wonder if maybe the Lord brought other groups from Jerusalem and Nephi didn't mention them either. It's complete speculation on my part, but it does offer a plausible explanation for some of the population questions that we're going to run into. For example, let's look at Jacob 1. In Jacob chapter 1 verse 7, only 55 years after Lehi left Jerusalem, Jacob reported that he and Nephi labored diligently to bring their people unto Christ. How many people could there have been? Lehi and his family crossed the ocean on a single ship, carrying at most a few dozen people. As we'll learn in 2 Nephi 5, not all of them remained with Nephi either. Half of them went with Laman and Lemuel. So if they were utterly alone, then the entirety of the Nephite population would have only been two generations of family. Think of a two-generation family reunion, but smaller because no one would have married anyone outside of the family. So at most, you'd have a few dozen Nephite parents and a whole bunch of kids, and that assumes that everyone stayed healthy. In, in Jacob 1.10, Jacob says that Nephi wielded the sword of Laban in defense of his people. Was he fighting the Lamanites? That would have been his brothers and nephews. And you can't kill many brothers and nephews before you start to reduce the number of Lamanites. And there was never a shortage of Lamanites. When we get to verse 15 in Jacob 1, 
Jacob reports that some of the Nephite men desired many wives and concubines. We said a minute ago, if they were all completely alone, Nephi's entire kingdom would have only been a few dozen grown-ups, all of which were related to each other. Where were they finding the ladies that they wanted as wives and concubines? Again, this was only 50 years after they stepped off the ship. And on the polygamy question of them wanting many wives and concubines, God said this in verse 30. For if I will, saith the Lord, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people. Otherwise, they shall hearken unto these things. It's a little bit out of context here, but essentially what God is saying is, I'll sometimes command polygamy if I need to boost my numbers. And then he explains that now is not the time. With only a few dozen people, how is now not the time? Or were there actually more people? And then in Jacob 7, while Jacob is still alive, and and remember that Jacob was on the original boat that crossed the ocean, so if we believe that the promised land was completely empty, every male that Jacob met would have been either his son or his grandson, or the son or grandson or one of his brothers. But in Jacob 7.1, it says that there came a man among the people of Nephi whose name was Sherem, came among them. He came among them from where? In verse 4, and he was learned that he had a perfect knowledge of the language of the people, wherefore he could use flattery and much power of speech according to the power of the devil. He had a perfect knowledge of the language of the people. Didn't they all speak the same language? Why was it significant that this man was fluent in their language? Reading on, we learn that this man had heard of Jacob, but had never met him. Now, I won't beat this to death any more than I already have, but there seemed to be an awful lot of hints that they were not alone. And archaeology kind of says that too. So let's go back to verse 9. Wherefore I, Lehi, have obtained a promise that inasmuch as those whom the Lord God shall bring out of the land of Jerusalem shall keep his commandments, they shall prosper upon the face of this land, and they shall be kept from all other nations, that they may possess this land unto themselves. And if it so be that they shall keep his commandments, they shall be blessed upon the face of this land. And there shall be none to molest them, nor to take away the land of their inheritance, and they shall dwell safely forever. So the land would belong to those brought out of Jerusalem forever, if they would remain righteous. But in verse 10, God gave a warning. But behold, when the time cometh that they shall dwindle in unbelief, after they have received so great blessings from the hand of the Lord, skipping ahead a little, behold, I say, if the day shall come that they will reject the Holy One of Israel, the true Messiah, their Redeemer, and their God, behold, the judgments of him that is just shall rest upon them. Yea, he will bring other nations unto them, and he will give unto them power, and he will take away from them the lands of their possessions, and he will cause them to be scattered and smitten. Those verses and promises where he talks about lands and nations appear to be talking nationally rather than individually. If the people in the promised land reject the Holy One of Israel, then other nations will come in and take away their possessions and cause them to be scattered and smitten. The Native Americans were certainly scattered and smitten and had their possessions taken away. Do the same blessings and promises apply to the people who scattered them and took their lands and their property? Maybe. From what Lehi says, it seems that the promises are associated with the land itself. So going back to our question from earlier, what land exactly is Lehi talking about? What land were the Nephites given for their inheritance? 
I've always pictured it as being the whole Western Hemisphere from Alaska down to Tierra del Fuego, also Cuba, the Caribbean, and so on. But I'm not sure that's right. If you look at a map of the Western Hemisphere, I'm not sure I would describe all of it as being continuously free and prosperous. Moving forward in the chapter, Lehi has gathered his sons so he can warn them that on this promised land, rejecting the Holy One leads to captivity. Verse 19. O my sons, that these things might not come upon you, but that ye might be a choice and a favored people of the Lord. But behold, his will be done, for his ways are righteousness forever. Now, after warning them generally about the dangers of being wicked, he talked to them specifically about Nephi. He said, Rebel no more against your brother, whose views have been glorious, and who hath kept the commandments from the time that we left Jerusalem and who hath been an instrument in the hands of God in bringing us forth unto the land of promise. For were it not for him, we must have perished with hunger in the wilderness. Nevertheless, ye sought to take his life away. Yea, and he hath suffered much sorrow because of you. He further said that Nephi might sometimes seem blunt or angry, but he was only seeking the glory of God and the eternal welfare of the group. Quote, And if ye will hearken unto the voice of Nephi, ye shall not perish. In reading this, I realized that Lehi was speaking from personal experience. Although he was the group's leader, they only prospered when they listened to Nephi. For example, Lehi needed the brass plates, and Nephi figured out how to get them. Uh, Lehi needed his people to cross the ocean to reach the promised land, and Nephi figured out how to do it. When Lehi complained about starving in the wilderness, Nephi found a solution. In short, The group did not perish when Lehi hearkened to Nephi. Lehi also knew that by asking them to hearken to Nephi, he was once again asking them to do a hard thing. Being around someone more valiant than you is hard, especially when this valiant person gives frequent reminders that you need to be more righteous. But was Lehi saying that his sons needed to obey and follow Nephi and that he was going to be their leader? No. They were still the older brothers and the leaders of the group, so they only needed to hearken to Nephi. Quote, and if ye will hearken unto him, said Lehi, I give unto you a blessing, even my first blessing. Laman receiving Lehi's first blessing meant that he would be Lehi's heir. Then in verse 29, but if ye will not hearken unto him, I take away my first blessing, yea, even my blessing, and it shall rest upon him. So although it's not mentioned again, this first blessing becomes important a few chapters later and throughout all of Nephite history. Lehi died, and Laman became the group's leader. Shortly after that, Nephi, quote, was constrained to speak unto Laman, Lemuel, and Ishmael's sons, and they decided they had had enough. And as Nephi said in chapter 5, verse 3, Yea, they did murmur against me, saying, Our younger brother thinks to rule over us, and we have had much trial because of him. Wherefore, now let us slay him, that we may not be afflicted more because of his words. For behold, we will not have him to be our ruler, for it belongs unto us, who are the elder brethren, to rule over this people. Although Laman would not have acknowledged it, his commitment to kill Nephi 
disqualified him from being Lehi's heir and transferred the first blessing over to Nephi, making him the heir and successor. So when Nephi left and took the brass plates and the sword of Laban and the Leahona and Lehi's other sacred items, it wasn't theft. Although he probably did take them from Laman's tent in the middle of the night. Taking these items was not theft, but Nephi's right as Lehi's heir. Laman definitely did not see it that way. He felt that Nephi had robbed him, which is what he told his children. And more than 400 years later, when Laman's descendants had completely forgotten about God, they still remembered that Nephi had taken Laman's position and had stolen the brass plates and other things from him. In Mosiah 10, we have a description of the Lamanites. Verse 12, They were a wild and ferocious and a bloodthirsty people, believing in the tradition of their fathers, which is this, believing that they were driven out of the land of Jerusalem because of the iniquities of their fathers, and that they were wronged in the wilderness by their brethren, and they were also wronged while crossing the sea. Verse 15, And again, they, Lemon and Lemuel, were wroth with him, Nephi, when they had arrived in the promised land because they said that he had taken the ruling of the people out of their hands and sought to kill him. And again they were wroth with him because he departed into the wilderness as the Lord had commanded him and took the records which were engraven on the plates of brass, for they said that he robbed them. And thus began a feud that would span a thousand years. And that's all we have for today. Now, today's trivia question. And answer this in the comments if you know it. To what tribe, meaning to which of the 12 tribes of Israel, did Lehi and his family belong? Answer in the comments section. And we will see you next time.